Welcome to The Way Church. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For sermon notes, service times, and more information, check us out online at thewaychurchva.com. Now let's join Pastor Matt Rothy with this week's message. If any of you were on the interwebs this week or on Twitter, uh, you may have seen the math equation that was quite literally causing divisions everywhere. Get it? That's a math joke. Um, Here's the equation right here. Eight divided by two times two plus two. You know the answer to that math problem? I'll let you take a look at it for just a second. Don't raise your hands. Don't call it out. Just maybe, I gave you a little scratch paper. If you have your worship guide open, you can do the math there. But there's a lot of polarizing opinions about what the answer is. And maybe let me just try my best to walk you through why that is. First of all, people try to solve this problem. Everyone agrees that the first thing you should do is what's in the parentheses or what's in the brackets. And we all know two plus two equals four. But now this is where it gets tricky. So what do you do next? Maybe you grew up in a place where this acronym helped you know what the order of operations is. PEMDAS, or please excuse my dear Aunt Sally, is how maybe some of you learned it. But what it does, it helps you know the order of how you should do things in math. First, you do what's inside the parentheses, P. Then you do the exponents, E. Then you do multiplication, then division, addition, and subtraction. So if we're doing PEMDAS, what's next? Two times four, right? And two times four, everyone knows, is eight. And eight divided by eight, everyone knows, is one. So if that's the order of operations you follow to get this answer, one seems pretty clear. Seems pretty simple, right? But not everyone grew up learning PEMDAS. Some people grew up learning something called BODMAS. And mostly it's people not in America. Mostly it's people in Great Britain who learned this acronym. But what does that do? Well, first you do what's in the B brackets, And that, again, is four. Then you do the orders, and we don't have any of those. So then you do division. And what's that? Eight divided by two is four. And what's four times four? Well, that's 16. So which is it? Is it PEMDAS or is it BADMAS? Some people do PEMDAS, some don't. Some people do BADMAS, some don't. It really all comes down to where in the world you grew up and how you learned math. What your worldview on math is like really has a profound impact on solving this problem. Is it multiplication first or division first? You'll hear equal voices saying it's one or the other. So which one is it? There can't be one right answer. Which is it? Well, depending where you grew up, where you were born, you're going to have a very different view about that. That's how powerful worldviews are. And that's what we're talking about in our new sermon series, Soul Searching, Worldviews, a philosophy that you have about how life works, how you see the world at work. Worldviews help answer questions to problems in your life and problems that have far more consequences and far bigger impact than that math problem. 
Christian author, Christian apologist, and Christian theologian Ravi Zacharias is famous for condensing some of life's biggest questions down to just a four. And here they are. We're going to take a look at them throughout this sermon series. They're questions about origin, where we came from. Questions about purpose and meaning and why we were put here on this earth. Questions about morals, what's right, what's wrong, and how do you know what's right or wrong? And also questions about destiny. What's going to happen when we die? Where do we go? What goes on? And, and what your worldview is, is going to have a profound impact on how you answer those questions. Some people do PEMDAS, some don't. Some people do BADMAS, some don't. Some people are Christians, and some aren't. Some people are religious and some aren't. Some people are spiritual and some aren't. Some people believe God exists and some people do not. But no matter who you are, no matter which philosophy you subscribe to or which religion you follow, everyone has a worldview and every worldview or religion or philosophy has an answer or is trying to answer these questions. Take, for example, the religion of Hinduism. If you are Hindu, you have answers to all these questions. The origin of life is that you came from a previous life. The meaning of life is to stockpile as many good things, as many good deeds as possible, to get as much karma as possible. And that's determined by what's right or wrong. Morally, you follow the Dharma. You follow the naturalistic laws that are handed down to you. And as far as destiny goes, Well, depending on how well you do with the meaning and the moral, stockpiling good based on dharma, well, that determines what kind of life you come back living. People who are Hindu have the answer to these questions. But so do people who don't follow religion. People who subscribe to, let's say, atheistic evolution. They have answers to these questions because of their worldview. Where did they come from? Well, they came from some lower life form. What's the meaning of life? Well, it's that we eat and procreate and make sure that our kind, our species, lives on. And that also gives us the answer to morals. What's right? Well, it's whatever is best for our species, whatever is best for advancing our kind. We can do whatever makes us happy as long as it doesn't hurt anyone and it advances the overall good. And as far as destiny, what happens to us? Well, eventually we die, decompose, and the next generations simply walk on top of us. If you have a religion, if you have a philosophy, you have a worldview. In fact, even if you don't, you have a worldview. If you ever meet someone who says to you that I am not religious and I am not a philosopher, please just let me live at peace. I don't want to answer these questions well, there in that admonition, you have, a, have an answer. You have a worldview. You have an understanding, an admission, that is, about what the meaning of life is. Just let me live at peace. That's my purpose. You have an admission about what morals is, about what's right and wrong. It's about you not foisting your philosophy, religion, or need to answer these questions on me and simply letting me be. And when it comes to the matter of origin and destiny, well, there's an admission in there as well. 
That those are great questions. Perhaps two great questions for me to answer. Too intimidating, and I don't know. What we're talking about is worldview. And everyone has a worldview, even you. Maybe you haven't thought of it before, but where you were raised, how you were raised, what your family was like, who your friends were, and where you've studied, these all provide an answer for what your worldview is. And we're going to talk about worldviews, specifically what the Christian worldview is and says about some of those questions in life throughout this sermon series, and here's why. It's because of 1 Peter chapter 3, which says this. We're told in Scripture to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. You have a worldview. You have ideas, opinions about how this world works. And in a post-Christian society that doesn't all subscribe to the fact that the Bible is God's word or believe that God exists, why do you say you believe what you do? And here's our big question for today. How do you know that the Christian worldview is correct? Are you prepared to answer that? It seems intimidating, doesn't it? To understand your own worldview so that you can answer and speak with people who have maybe a different worldview. If you feel intimidated or overwhelmed by that, let me just share with you one quote from a famous theologian, Charles Spurgeon. He lived during the 1800s, and and this is what he said. He said, the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is open the lion's cage, and the lion will defend itself. What he's saying is this, is if there is a God, and if there is a God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die, and if there is a God who gave his word and preserved his word for us, and his word is true, you don't have to so much defend it as you simply need to open the cage and let it defend itself. Let it answer clearly for itself some of the questions about life. Questions that deal with origin, Questions that deal with the meaning, the purpose of why you're here. Questions about morals and questions about what your destiny is. Let me say this before we get into these questions, our first of these questions today. During this sermon series, I'm not trying to convince you, if you're an atheist, that this worldview is correct. Nor am I trying to equip you, if you are a Christian, with all the right answers to just go to battle and shoot off the magic bullet answers for talking to people about this. But rather, here's what we're doing in this sermon series. We're going to work from the understanding that God's word is God's word and just explore the implications of what the answers to these questions are based on the Christian worldview is God's word is in fact God's word. So what we're starting with today is this. It's the first question, the question about origin and where we all came from. Right away in the book of Genesis, in the very first book of the Bible, we are given that answer. God tells us that he made us. Chapter two then goes into a little more detail. It says that mankind, men, males, were made out of the dust of the ground, that God took his hands and he formed Adam out of the clay in the ground. That chapter also unpacks how God created females, how he took a rib from Adam and from that females were made. And God said it was very good. But in fact, he doesn't just say it was very good. He shares this. 
that over and over as you read Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2, that this was the crown of God's creation. That what he made wasn't just good. It was very good. Because God made males and females in his own image. What does that mean to be in God's own image? It means that we mirror him. We mirror him exactly. We mirror him in perfection. When God made Adam and Eve, they did. They mirrored him in perfection, in holiness, in righteousness. It means that being made in imao dei, in the image of God, your will, your volition, your intellect, your emotions, all these things mirror and match exactly with our God's. That's what it means to be made in God's image. Some of you know there's Genesis chapter 3, right? And in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, what we have recorded is the fall and the fall into sin and the losing of the image of God, where Adam and Eve decided to stop trusting God and instead trust themselves and their own intellect, and they thought they knew better. And so they took fruit that they were forbidden to eat, and they ate it, and everything was lost. The image of God was gone. No longer were our souls built to last forever. No longer were our bodies built to last forever. No longer were our emotions, our intellect, and our will perfectly aligned with our God. But instead, they were turned inward. Selfishly, they were turned in on us, twisted and broken and selfish. And forever, we lost that image. And yet, here's the amazing thing that Psalm 139 reminds us. As much as we have lost during the fall into sin and during this time where we live here on this earth, that we were still meant to be made for more. We were still created in the image of God. We were still fearfully and wonderfully made, the psalmist tells us. We read this, that God says, you created, or David said, you created me in my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Yeah, he's saying something about when life starts. He says, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. King David is writing this, just so you know, 3,000 years ago. 3,000 years ago, before there was science, before there was technology, before there was the ability to look at a baby forming in its mother's womb. And yet this is what he said. I was fearfully and wonderfully made. I was knit together by God. When all I could see was a baby bump, I knew there was something special from God going on in there. I mean, these are just pictures that we get to see today because of modern science. This is a baby at four weeks old already with a heartbeat. A baby at eight weeks old with arms and legs and a brain. A baby at 10 weeks old that has arms and legs and fingernails and a diaphragm that makes it so it can hiccup. Here's a baby at uh, 18 weeks old that has all of the same senses that you have. The ability to smell, the ability to see, the ability to feel and touch and hear. Imagine for a moment, what would King David have written if he was able to see this? Well, I imagine 
that he'd say much of the same. That we were fearfully and wonderfully made. It gives us our answer. The Bible pretty clearly and from the very beginning gives us our answer about origin, where we come from, and that God made you. God made you fearfully. God made you wonderfully. God made you thoughtfully, carefully, and intricately. And most of all, God made you lovingly. Very simply, this is what the Christian worldview says about our origins. But if you will, explore with me what the, what the uh, implications of that are. Because already in Psalm 139, we're told some of those. An implication of God making you the way he did. Psalm 139 says this. David writes, You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is even on my tongue, your Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. This is an implication of having a God who made you. It's that he knows you. He knows your thoughts. He knows your fantasies. He knows your goals. And he knows the words unspoken. He knows the words that you're going to say and he's known them from eternity. And if he's known all that, you can be sure that he knows everything you say. He knows everything that you do and he knows everything that you will ever say or do. You might be thinking about that for a second and saying, God, can I have just a little freedom? <laughs> can I have just a little space? That seems rather intrusive that you know every single thing about me, whether it's thought, whether it's word, or whether it's an action. Can I please have some space? The answer is no. It doesn't work that way to have a God who created you just step back and not know about his creation. David unpacks that further. He says this, he says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will not shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. Do you understand the implications of this? If you could dig a hole so deep and cover it over that the sun did not shine in it, God would still see you. If you were able to be so mindful that you were able to just think no thoughts and simply just exist and be, yet if you had one thought, one simple little short thought, it would be as big and as loud as a bright neon light billboard to God. He would see it. He knows everything about you. He knows everything that you will ever do and everything that you have ever done. And one day, our maker was someone you and I will meet. And the implications of that, they might be rather frightening. They might be dreadful. Or are they? Look at what King David goes on to say. As you read Psalm 139, ask, ask yourself, 
do you get a sense of fear coming from David? He says, such knowledge, talking about God seeing and knowing everything. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Is David talking with fear and dread? We read the whole psalm before. Do you get the sense that David is trembling before God? Or he's standing calm and confident? David's standing rather secure because God's hand is always with him. Precisely not despite the fact that God knows everything about him. Why is that? Is it because David is holier than you and me? Is it because David has a special in with God? Well, if you're here for our last sermon series, you know that that's not David. David is a sinner. David is someone who did grotesque sins. David is someone who murdered. David is someone who committed adultery. And David is someone who had plenty of other mess-ups in his life. So how is it that David is able to look at the fact that the God who created him knows everything about him and stand secure? Because David was asking, and his soul was searching for answers to the same questions that we're asking. The question today of origin and about where David came from. And David had the same information that we have. David was able to look back at Genesis chapter 1 and read that he was made in the image of God, in ma'odei. And that's not just fancy theological jargon for you. That means something. That lays the foundation for who you are, knowing where you came from and what you were meant to be and what image you were created in says something about your value. It says something about who you are and who made you. Regardless of your age, regardless of your race, regardless of your orientation or ethnicity, the fact that you were made matching, mirroring God, well, it means something. Furthermore, David also knew that there was something in Genesis chapter 3, that Jesus, or excuse me, God who made you also promised his son Jesus saying, I will, when he spoke to Satan and Adam and Eve, he said, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. All the way in Genesis chapter three, he's preaching the gospel to us. David had the same message you and I had, that you not only have a God who made you, but you have a God who planned your redemption. You have a God who went out of his way to see to it that your image, the image of God would be restored to you. And he brought you back with the gift of his son. David looked forward to that. You and I get to look back at that. At the fact that God sent his one and only son into the world to suffer in place of you and I. To do the thing that you and I could not do and that is live perfectly so that he can clothe us with his righteousness. So that he can give us freely his perfection. That he can take away all your guilt and instead give you peace. Instead give you joy that transcends even the most difficult situations in your life. That's what your Jesus gets for you. And think about this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how much more will he not give us all things? 
See, if your God didn't just make you, didn't just redeem you, how much more will he not be there for you? That is the Christian worldview. That is what the Christian faith changes about us. It changes our view of God. No longer is God someone that we need to be afraid of because there's a separation for us. But Jesus changes the view on that. He changes the way we see the world. And most importantly, he changes the way we see our God. Listen, the very same things that sound like curses, that God knows everything about you, that God has counted each and every one of your sins, well, it also means that on the cross, God knows not a single one of those sins went unpaid for. He has given you all of them freely paid for. Not one of them still counts against you. What it means that you have a God whose hand is always on you, it means no matter where you go, no matter who is with you, no matter what harm might come to you, no matter how dark the cloud of depression might be, God's hand is there. There is no act of violence too great. There is no thing too small that your God's hand isn't there for. The fact that God made you and he knit you together in front and behind while you were still in the secret place of your mother's womb The fact that God was there for your very first breath, it means he will be there for every single one, including your last, so that he ushers you to be with him in heaven. That is the implications of the Christian faith on the worldview that you have. I wouldn't have it any other way. Would you? The question that we're asking, a big question for the day is this, though. How can you be sure that your Christian worldview is accurate? To help answer that, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the apologist and the Christian philosopher, Ravi Zacharias, give an answer to that. Check it out. You take a look at other world religions and see where these four questions are dealt with. Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. These four questions have to be answered in two ways. Follow me, please. Every particular answer has to correspond to truth, either through empirical form of measurement or through the logical reasoning process. And when those four answers are put together, they must cohere and not be incoherent. So the two tests, correspondence and coherence, I guarantee you only in the Judeo-Christian worldview, will you find these four questions answered with corresponding truthfulness and with the coherence of a worldview? Let me take just one example, and I don't say this to slight, but this is a fact and we have to deal with it. I've been invited in many, many Islamic countries and I have open forums there and going to go to one of the toughest Islamic countries within the next few weeks. They've hosted me in many parts there and we've had dialogues. I want to give to you two things. In the Quran, it is the only historically claimed document that denies that Jesus Christ was actually crucified or died on the cross. Denies that. The Greek historians say he died on the cross. Roman historians say that. Pagan historians say that. Jewish historians say that. And Christian historians say that. 
The Islamic, uh, the, the Quran is the only one that says it appeared to him that he died, but he didn't actually die on the cross. So historically, it is making an affirmation that is really historically untrue. I got into a discussion with Sheikh Hussein of the leading Shiite cleric in Damascus series, a real gentleman. For over three hours, we talked with an interpreter between us and an audience listening in. I was allowed to ask him one question about his faith and he was allowed to ask me one question about mine. There was nothing, no rancor, no adversarial stance, just a perspective and counter perspective and back and forth. It's the best way to do it really. At the end of it, Sheikh Hussein looked at me, he was very respectful through the whole time, always referred to me as Professor, Professor Zacharias, Professor Zacharias. And then at the end, he looked at me, leaned over, and he said, you know, Professor, I think the time has come for us in the Islamic world to stop asking if Jesus Christ died and to start asking why. I said to him, may I quote you on that, sir? He said, yes, you may. I'm, I'm hopefully going to go there before long and I hope we can meet up again. Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. The Judeo-Christian worldview is not the only one that claims exclusivity, but it's the only one that takes those four questions with corresponding answers that are truthful and coherent answers that stand the test of time. And the ultimate answer of the resurrection from the dead that gives you hope and meaning. Did you see what he hung it all on? He asked the question, how you can be sure this is the only one? He said it all really hangs on the fact of the crucifixion and the historically acclaimed fact that Christ died and he rose. St. Paul writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 got at this very idea. He said this, think about it. If Christ had not been raised from the dead, well, then your faith is futile. It's pointless. And you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep thinking they believe in Christ, well, they're lost. If only for this life we only have hope in Christ, well, then we are people that are most of all to be pitied. But that didn't happen because Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The fact of the resurrection, the fact of Christ's death, and the fact that the Christian faith and only at the foot of the cross do those answers find consistent answers, consistent truth means something. It means that you can have confidence and you can have faith that your worldview, the Christian worldview that hangs and is shaped by Christ himself is correct. It's because the God that has made you is also the God who has saved you. And he's also the God that will raise you. It's the reason for the hope that you have. And if it's hope that you only have for this life, you are to be pitied as a fool. But it's hope that we have for life eternal. Let me give you just one example of this. In Genesis chapter one, when it talks about the image of God being what we are made in, it means that we reflect something. We reflect that which we are oriented to. Being made in the image of God means that you share the mirrored likeness of God. All the blessings that go with that. All the good things about having your will, your emotions, your intellect match 
mirror image of God. And yet if you orient that mirror anywhere else, it's broken. In Christ, we have that reconciliation. We have that restoration. We have that mirror pointed back at God. But if you take that mirror now and you point it back at yourself or back at any other thing, whether it's your family or your own cleverness or your own beauty or your own abilities or your own intellect or your own formed worldview, you might have the answers to these questions, but you will not have them with the consistency and with the confidence that they have being pointed at Christ, who, being God himself, bearing the image of God, made himself nothing so that he could die on the cross and so that he could orient you and point you back to the image of God and restore you for that. If all we ever had was Genesis chapter one, you would know that you are something special. You would know that you are being made in the image of God, but you would also know you lost that. But we have Genesis 3. In fact, we have the entire scriptures that testify to the fact that Jesus came so that souls that are searching for meaning, souls that are searching for where they came from can stop the search and call it off and know that their soul can rest in the hands of the God that made them, saved them, and would one day raise them. Amen. Amen.